Father, thank you so much for our brother, praying that uh, he would become unimportant in this moment, uh, that it would be all about you, your significance, your glory, that we would see you, we would hear you, we would know you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. So I'm excited for this uh, opportunity to be able to speak to you all. Um, we're going to be continuing in Philemon. Um, so if you want to turn there now, um, we've been in this three-part series that began with John Novak and then Enoch um, and then Today, we'll be looking at the last eight verses of this letter, um, verses 17 through 25. So, to begin, I want to just read this letter again, and then we will uh, do a quick recap from what our brothers have been sharing with us over the past two weeks before we go into uh, what we're going to learn today. So, Philemon 1, it says... Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apaphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the, no, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I've preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this is perhaps, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
So let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this letter that we have from Paul and Timothy um, and just their faithfulness that we get to see through the New Testament. And um, we just pray now that we would learn from your word that you would be greatly exalted in this time. Um, there is so much that can be said through your word and just pray that you would make clear to us this morning what you want us to hear, what you want us to learn, um, that you would calm my nerves and that you would just be honored in this time. So we just thank you for it and uh, we just praise you for your faithfulness towards each one of us and your name. Amen. So let's briefly recap what we learn in the first 16 verses. Um, we see that Paul is writing to Philemon, who is a brother, a fellow co-worker. And we see that this is a letter also addressed to a couple other people, Apaphia, Archippus, and the church that is in Philemon's house. In verses 4 to 7, we see Paul's love and thankfulness for his brother Philemon, and we also see the love that Philemon has for God and for all the saints. Now in verse 10, we see a new person introduced, Onesimus. And we read that Paul is making an appeal to Philemon for Onesimus, who is a bondservant of Philemon. This word bondservant can also be translated slave, and we'll, I'll use that interchangeably throughout. So as we go, just so you understand. So Onesimus, who is a slave or bondservant of Philemon, he departed him from him, and we see that in verses 15 and 16. Since that departure, we see that Onesimus's path has then crossed with Paul. And Paul says he has become the father of Onesimus in his imprisonment, and that Onesimus has made himself useful to Paul. Now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. And in verse 13, Paul says, I would have been glad to keep him in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul also says in verse 12 that sending Onesimus back to Philemon is like sending his heart. So therefore, Paul is saying he would like to keep Onesimus around as he's built this father-son relationship between them. But he is sending him back because he knows that he needs to. Paul knows that between Onesimus and Philemon, there's this unresolved conflict. According to the Roman law of the day, Philemon has legal right to take action against Onesimus because Onesimus left Philemon not according to him fulfilling his terms as a bondservant, but he left him and most likely cause loss to Philemon. So there's this unique paradox. Onesimus, who was a slave, ran away for freedom. And the freedom that he was hoping to find, he actually doesn't really quite find with his freedom from Philemon. This is what Enoch preached on last week, that relationship with Christ changes everything. Onesimus 
finds a new freedom, a freedom that comes in Christ. So he left Philemon for freedom, but now he's actually returning to Philemon again as a bondservant, most likely to face legal allegations for how he left him, but Onesimus is now a changed man. So, as we see this, and Paul is saying that Onesimus has become useful to him, Paul writes to Philemon and says to him in verse 11, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. He goes on in verse 15 and 16 saying, For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. Philemon, the master of Onesimus, was legally wronged and impacted, most likely financially or another way, by Onesimus' unaccounted departure. Philemon has legal means to feel betrayed or hurt by Onesimus. But take note of how Paul is presenting this to Philemon. Paul is sending Onesimus' back to Philemon, not just for this legal reconciliation, but for a far greater reason. Look at verse 16. More than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is paving the way for brotherhood in Christ to sprout between Onesimus and Philemon. So all this brings us to where we are in verse 17. So we are going to be looking from there in the last eight verses of this letter. And I'm breaking this down into three points or takeaways for us. The first point we will find in verse 17. And this point I'm going to call the right way to look at brothers and sisters in Christ. The next point we will find in verses 18 through 20. And this I'm calling the necessity of reconciliation. Modeling Christ Jesus' example. And the third point we're going to find in the last five verses, which is godly expectations of brothers and sisters in Christ. So Zorbel wanted an alliteration, um, and so she tried to put one together and wrote these three points as perspective, practice, and for the third one she said, expectations because couldn't think of something for expectations so if that helps you as we go through these points so just to say them again the right way to look at brothers and sisters in Christ the necessity of reconciliation modeling Christ Jesus example and lastly godly expectations of brothers and sisters in Christ so we're going to start with that first point the right way to look at brothers and sisters in Christ so let's look at verse 17. If you consider me your partner. Paul is transitioning after just giving Philemon the reasons why he should accept Onesimus in verses 15 and 16. Paul now gives Philemon an example of how he can see him as a brother and not just a bondservant. So how does he do this? Read the remainder of verse 17. Receive him as you would receive me. Paul has an established relationship with Philemon. If you remember from earlier in this letter, Paul calls himself an old man, 
at this point, Paul's life um, would have been seen by churches as him being a devoted follower of Christ. He wrote many letters to the churches, and now as an old man, he would be seen as uh, an elderly saint among these churches. And to Philemon, um, he would be viewed in that way. And Paul is asking here of Philemon, if you consider me a partner, he's appealing to this relationship that he has for the sake of Onesimus. So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. In addition to appealing to this relationship with Philemon, Paul is making a clear distinction. Philemon may be master over Onesimus in legal affairs, but in Christ, Philemon and Onesimus, they are equal. Read again in verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Paul writes in the letter to the Galatian church, There is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave or free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ we are all one. In Christ your status, your position, ethnicity, or anything else does not matter. In Christ we are all one. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Yes, we are all different members and have different roles in the body of Christ, but in Christ we are all one body, and must treat all other parts of the body as essential. Paul is making clear to Philemon that as he receives Onesimus back again, he must not expect that things are going to be just how they were before. And this may be why Paul also includes Apaphia, Archippus, and the entire church in Philemon's house, because all of them, not only Philemon, all of them are to now receive Onesimus in a new way. Not just a slave like before, but as a brother in Christ, having equal standing with them all because of Christ. Paul earlier talked about the usefulness of Onesimus to him, and that now Onesimus would be even more useful to Philemon. Not just because he was receiving his bondservant again, but because a new brother was entering his church with his own unique gifts, his contribution to the body of Christ. If Paul was coming to Philemon's church, Philemon would most likely see Paul as a very useful contributor to his church. Paul is calling Philemon to see Onesimus that way. So if you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. So let us continue now in the next three verses and think about our second point the necessity of reconciliation, modeling Christ Jesus' example. Verse 18, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. 
Refresh my heart in Christ. In verse 18, Paul is taking on a lot of responsibility and a risk of potentially great cost. As he writes, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is not the offender here. Onesimus is the offender. Yet he is willing to take on all the potential damage that Onesimus cost Philemon. We don't know what that damage may be, but he most likely, at the least, costs Philemon a lot financially. Paul is saying, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hands. I will repay it. Paul is demonstrating here what it looks like to absolve another's debt. He does not have a debt to Onesimus, but he is gladly choosing to absolve Onesimus' debt. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see an example of this in the Samaritan, who after binding up the Jewish man's wounds after he was beaten by the robbers, sets him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I get back. The Samaritan is choosing to absolve any debt that the injured Jewish man may accrue while he stays in the inn to heal. So it makes me ask, would I do the same? But even before I can ask that question, I must ask, why would I do the same? Why would we choose to absolve another's debt? Especially as in the case of the Good Samaritan, the Jews did not like the Samaritans. Paul could have just sent Onesimus back and told Philemon, please receive him as you would me and treat him now as your brother in Christ. Or Paul did not even have to write this letter to send with Onesimus. He could have told Onesimus, I wish you the best when you return and meet Philemon again. But Paul does not do that. As Paul knows that he has been giving something far greater. In this letter, Paul is demonstrating to Onesimus and to all of us who read this letter that we are called to act likewise. Why, we may ask? Because in Christ, our debt of sin has been absolved in a far greater way than a Samaritan man taking on the debt for a Jewish man who possibly disliked or hated him. God took on the debt of an entire universe of people whom he created and who hated him in return. This example of absolving another's debt we get from God himself. Now this idea of taking someone else's debt as your own and you having a debt of your, of your soul before God will not make sense to you if you do not understand a few things. So here, please, please pay attention. You must first understand something about God that God is holy. If you have no concept of God's holiness, then you will have no concept of who you are. I'm going to say that again. If you have no concept of God's holiness, then you will have no concept of who you are. You will not understand your place beneath God and of the rebellious life you live against God. You will not understand that you need forgiveness from God. So what do I mean when I say God is holy? I mean that he is absolutely perfect, 
completely pure, always moral and right. Richard Lintz, who wrote an article, The Holiness of God, he defines God holiness in this way. The holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and the absolute moral distance between God and his creatures. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of you and I, also created laws. Yet we, his creatures, we decided to treat our God and creator with contempt. We disobeyed his laws, we lied to one another, we cheat one another, we slander one another, we hate one another, we plan all kinds of evils against one another. This list could go on. But God is holy, and therefore, with just one act that we do that disobeys God's laws, we are forever sinners. It's in our nature. But God is so very different than us. He does not go against his perfect laws. He's absolutely morally perfect and acts rightly every time. So if you understand this concept of God's holiness, then you will now have a concept of who you are. One who has disobeyed God's commands and has made yourself an enemy of God. For if God is to maintain his holiness and absolute perfect moral character, then he must not let your sin go unpunished. He must destroy you for your sin. Let us not think for a second that we can dry, try and do some nice things to change our grim fate. No matter how much good you do or how highly or lowly you think of yourself, you will never rectify your relationship with God. Our fate is grim. Our destruction is at hand. But our God, in his infinite wisdom and miraculous grace, provides us a way of escape. Romans 5, 6-8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one won't dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does this death mean? This death means that yes, we have sins and are disobedient, but there is a way out. There's a way to righteousness for us and purity for us, just like God has in his holiness. And the only way this comes is from God himself. God choosing to die for his sinful creation so that our debt of sins may be paid for. And that is exactly what he did. By sending Jesus to live a perfect life for us and to die a horrific death on the cross, Jesus did not just die there for us, but rose again three days later after the crucifixion. And in his rising, he granted us new life. We have been granted Jesus' righteousness now and his purity. How do we receive such an amazing gift of grace from our God creator? Through faith. By believing and trusting in who God says he is, and what he has done for us. Paul writes in the letter to the Romans about us obtaining the righteousness of God in faith in Jesus Christ. And he puts it much better than I ever could. So he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is that we all fall short and our right standing before God comes because of God's gift of grace towards us through the redemption that is in Jesus. And we receive this gift solely by faith so that God is just, not going against his holiness, by forgiving and purifying any one of us who puts our faith in him. This is essential. If you don't get anything else of, out of this sermon today, please understand this and put your faith in Jesus. So as we look again to our text, we see Paul modeling what Jesus did for Paul, for Onesimus, for Philemon. Jesus absolved the debts that each one of them owed before God by putting those debts on himself on the cross. Their sin and our sin don't get swiped away without a cost. There's a heavy cost, and it was paid through Jesus spilling his blood. So we see in this letter, Paul following in the footsteps of his Savior, Jesus, and he is absolving the debt that Onesimus owes Philemon. Verse 18, if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Paul follows this up by saying, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. It appears here that Paul is telling Philemon that he does not have a responsibility to cover Onesimus' debt. If anything, Philemon owes Paul. But Paul, instead of commanding Philemon, he says in verse 20, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So this is going to bring us to our third point, which we're going to see in these last few verses. Godly expectations of brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul wrote earlier in this letter saying, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And now Paul is writing that through Philemon's response towards Onesimus, he wants some benefit and also to feel refreshed by him in Christ. Just as Paul knows Philemon is already um, doing this in his house church, Paul clearly sees Philemon as a partner and brother of the gospel. So he is holding Philemon to a very, very high standard, knowing that Philemon knows he what, what must he do and that Philemon's going to carry this out. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul has a lot of expectations here. In addition to these big requests he's making of Philemon, Paul does not stop there, but goes on requesting. Look at verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul is making clear that he's planning to follow up with Philemon 
and that when he arrives, he's expecting it to be carried out. And he says at the end, even more than I say. If we look at Jesus again, Jesus gives us a very simple and easy to carry out command in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Very simple. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sounds nice and simple, but that's impossible if God does not help us. Jesus gives this command also just after talking about how we are supposed to love our enemies. That's not simple. Loving our enemies? We see from this that God has a very, very high expectation for us. Therefore, the reconciliation that Paul is asking of Philemon to carry out suddenly appears a little more reasonable. I want us to think for a minute about the expectations that we hold. In my job, I work a lot with high school kids on a daily basis. And often the maturity level from a freshman to a senior can stand out, can be pretty significant. However, there are times when you have a senior who is acting with the maturity that you probably expect from a freshman or less. And vice versa, you have a freshman who's acting with the maturity that you would expect of a senior. I believe, I believe these different levels of maturity so often start from the expectations that children have from their parents or guardians starting at the home. This then goes out into where we work, into the school, or even here at church. It often comes from the expectations that are held. Holding children to expectations, though, that requires work. Very, very difficult work. It is one thing to have an expectation. It's another thing to have an expectation and hold someone strictly to it. The parents who do not hold their children to much of a standard most often find themselves with children in the body of young men and women who are cursed, uh, who curse, are rude, disruptive, disobedient, selfish. Um, I see this time and time again. And then in contrast, you'll have kids and who you can tell there's a high expectation for them in the home. And that high expectation often comes with different qualities, such as obedience, responsibility, being politeful, thoughtful, caring of others. God holds us to a very high expectation. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Paul seems to also have a very high expectation for Philemon. And he says um, in verse 21, confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul expects Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus. Will we do the same? Jesus said, 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus will return, and he's going to hold us accountable to this ministry of reconciliation that he has given to us, as we just saw in 2 Corinthians. So, as we come to a close, let us consider some questions of how God is calling each one of us to take action from what we're learning from these verses. So, in the first point, the right way to look at brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul tells Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would if he was receiving Paul. Philemon was hurt by Onesimus, but now has the opportunity to forgive and to look at Onesimus in a new way, as a beloved brother. Do we receive brothers and sisters in Christ equally, seeing all members of our body as vital? Or do we show favoritism? These are some questions that I want us to think about and look at our own hearts and lives. Point two, we looked at the necessity of reconciliation, modeling Christ Jesus' example. The first question that has to be asked is, have you been reconciled with God because of your sin? If you have not, then please grab any one of us who comes here regularly, and we would be happy to share that with you. Have you, though, been hurt by a brother or sister in the church or a family member like Philemon was hurt by Onesimus? How do you respond? Are you quick to catch judgment, to gossip about them in private settings, or are you quick to forgive because you know how much you have been forgiven by God? In our third point, godly expectations of brothers and sisters in Christ, let us consider what kind of expectations we should have for one another in the church. We should expect obedience to Christ. Would you say others are confident of your obedience to Christ, like Paul said to Philemon? Paul was confident that Philemon was going to be obedient in what he was asking him. Philemon knew how he was to respond to his brother in Christ, and Paul told him how to do it. We must do likewise. That when it comes to obedience to Christ, we should expect our brothers and sisters to act in obedience. When we do not, we should lovingly, as fellow co-workers in Christ, be redirecting each other again to the path of obedience in Christ. It is unloving for us to hold each other to no expectation. Just like it is unloving for a parent to hold their child to no expectations. This is not an invitation for us to cast whatever selfish expectations we have but for us to hold each other accountable to the expectations that God has given us. And we have that through his word. Paul ends this letter with closing greetings from fellow workers of his, writing, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, 
are Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. I find these names a helpful reminder that Paul did not do all of this work on his own. Paul had a specific role, and each one of these other individuals did as well. We, as a body of believers, need one another to be the body of Christ. And we also need the many other churches that are around us here in our city and across the globe. We are not the body of Christ on our own. We are not saved just for us to be saved, but we are saved to be Christ's bride. So together, may we press on to holiness and Christ-likeness. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us all pray. Lord, we thank you that we have access to your word. We have it in our own written language. We can read it um, on a daily basis. Um, and that we have the ability to gather together um, and share it and read it and sing it and pray it and uh, just learn more about you together. And we can do that publicly, Lord. Um, so thank you for your blessings uh, towards us in that. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for Jesus and his shedding his blood for us. Lord, may we know that more today and may we respond in loving and forgiving in reconciling in holding one another accountable in the expectations that you have of us in our obedience to you and our love that we are called to share together so lord we just pray that through as we end in song and that you would just be honored um, and that as we go from here we would carry this out through the week and we would love you more in our lives. We just pray all of this in your name. Amen.